to invite Chaplain Chad Montgomery to go ahead and come up. And as he comes up, I'll just briefly mention to you all, uh, Chaplain Montgomery is a PCA teaching elder, a chaplain at the U.S. Air Force Academy, wing chaplain there. And his wife, Kathy, and his son, Sammy, and daughter, Sarah and Ashley, are members of the church. Um, as a chaplain, you're commissioned as an evangelist out of which presbytery? South Texas. South Texas Presbytery. So he maintains membership in the presbytery as an itinerant evangelist chaplain, uh, but his family is a member of the church. And I would just mention, uh, if, especially if you're new or haven't been with us that long, we are going through a summer in the Psalms. And so as I was charting out the, the theme, uh, I asked the different preachers who are going to be preaching if you would sort of pick something that has a theme. And I was so glad whenever Chad chose Psalm 88, because that meant I didn't have to preach it. Because it is the lament of laments. And so, uh, with that introduction, let's get into God's word, and I'll hand it over to Chaplain Montgomery. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word from Psalm 88. A psalm, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you do wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, good morning. If you're looking forward to a really exciting pick-me-up passage for the week, I've already failed. But I wanted to go through some things. I thought it was important to talk about this. Just so you know, I won't be talking about a lot of the Hebrew translations or exegetical specifics about this. Part of my seminary training was that our job is to make bread behind the scenes, but then when it's time to preach, we're not supposed to tell you how we made the bread. We just give you bread. So we'll go through it here. Our passage is what has been called the saddest psalm in the entire Bible. Acts 20, 27 reminds the minister that we are to preach the whole counsel of God. In other words, 
if I or any other minister only preaches on the passages that we like or we only stay on certain moods, then we're really not fulfilling our calling. Much of the Bible deals with sorrow, with not being happy. Yes, sometimes you get these happy topics and joyful topics, but there's multiple moods. I have heard some preachers focus on the fact that God is a warrior, and that's true, but make that the only theme that they talk about. Yes, he's a warrior, but God is also described as a shepherd. He's also described as a husband. He's also described as a father. Jesus has also been described as a man of sorrows. So we'll be focusing really on just two things today. Two things, if you want to keep them in mind, and we'll get to them. The two things are the reality of suffering, the reality of suffering in this world. And the second thing we'll be talking about is what is a Christian's response to that? How should we respond? So the reality of suffering, and what is a Christian's response to that? Many good books on this topic. I won't get into all the specifics and the involved discussions because we could go into what has been called throughout history theodicy. That was the ancient, the Middle, e Middle Ages word for this, theodicy. Why is there suffering? That's kind of a big picture topic. I'm most inter interested this morning in the object of that suffering, and that's you and me. How does it affect us? So a brief background on the psalm, and then we'll step into it here. Many other psalms end up without being a downer. This is the downer of downers when it comes to psalms. It doesn't end like the others. You're waiting for the happy note at the end where, yes, life is terrible, but hey, God, you're here, you showed up. This one doesn't end like that. It's not by David, it's by the sons of Korah. And what's strange is the sons of Korah elsewhere wrote some really uplifting things. These are the people who wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. They wrote, why so downcast, O my soul, put your hope in God. They write, blessed are those who have regard for the weak. The Lord will deliver them in times of trouble and restore them from their bed of illness. They wrote, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. So where in the world did all of that go? It's like they forgot about it when they got to this psalm. The first few verses that you've heard read already, he is begging God to hear him. Just begging. Save me, please. We don't know what the specific trouble is, but it's obviously something very serious, and it's something that impacts him physically. Perhaps it's vague intentionally. In the second section, you have what they're called the I statements, and theologians will refer to these as the I statements, where he's constantly saying, I am afflicted. I am affected. This is affecting me. I'm very much involved in this, God. Very personal. In the third section, it's sovereignty in action. He's recognizing God has allowed this in his sovereignty to happen. We like to use that phrase sovereignty, especially in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, but we don't typically hear people use it when it's something sad. Sadly, and I've done this too, sovereignty is when we explain something good for ourselves. I got a new job. Isn't God sovereign? I got a promotion. God provided for this vacation. Isn't God good? But do we say that God is sovereign when the news means a job loss or pancreatic cancer? This is a song, too. Not the kind of song you normally sing during church. Sing verse 15. You wouldn't normally hear that sung out loud. Afflicted and close to death from my youth, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. 
doesn't really roll off the tongue there. <laughs> we have songs like this in our hymnal, believe it or not. Some, uh, song number 568 in the Trinity hymnal, In the Hour of Trial. In Trinity hymnal number 641, How Long Wilt Thou Forget Me? There's other hymnals that have songs that are actually based on Psalm 88. I haven't seen any in the Trinity hymnal, but regardless, I don't really hear them sung very often because you probably wouldn't have as much money in the offering plate. And yet these lyrics are truly, truly inspired. Sometimes even our singing can be one-dimensional. We sing with the emotion of happiness. Sometimes it's okay to sing when we're sad. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, as we step in to speaking more about this passage, all of us at some point in life have experienced something painful, something we never wanted, and yet it came. I pray for those, for those of us who are struggling, the physical, emotional, or other challenges, relational challenges. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see what you bring, what you provide in our poverty, so that we may know wisely what to do, and at the end, maybe just lift up our hands and say, hold me, Lord. Amen. Since I was little, the pastor I grew up learning from, wonderful man, he would always start every sermon off by quoting Hebrews 4.12, and so it's become a habit of mine as well. So I always quote this verse before. It's a good reminder of why we preach. So Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So here we go, the reality of suffering and a Christian response to suffering. First, the reality of suffering. The first verse in this passage states what God has done that helped. He said, Lord of my salvation, I cry out to you. That sounds good, but that's really the only positive verse in here. Just this once, the focus is suffering. It's rare to find someone who's against being happy. I don't know if you've run into someone like that, but it is kind of rare. Usually most people are okay with being happy for their life. We expect to be happy as the norm, and we wonder why when we're not happy. We're kind of surprised. Rather than expecting life to be hard and sad and being surprised at those times when it's not. Life is not all happy, it's as if sometimes we verbally acknowledge the resurrection and show praise, but not seriously acknowledge the fall when it is all around us and weep. Suffering hits unevenly. Some have pain from walking or sitting in their 60s. Some never get to walk their entire life. Some watch their kids get athletic scholarships. Other parents are just thankful that their child can breathe without assistance, and they wonder, what could have been. Some mourn the death of their parent or a sibling or a spouse after decades of life. Others mourn that they never got to know them because they died so young or because they left. Some deal with excruciating physical pain, often masked because others just wouldn't understand. Some deal with the pain of feeling abandoned. Some deal with the pain of being mistreated. Some deal with the consequences of a reckless or a drunk driver. Some walk into churches and leave with no one getting to know them because after the sermon, people head for those that they already know and feel comfortable with. You hear that God loves you, 
People tell you they pray for you, but the pain hasn't gone away. And sometimes that's all you want. I just want the pain or the sorrow to go away. Becoming more sanctified in those moments is not what you care about. Perhaps we've forgotten, and maybe this is part of the issue, how much suffering has been a part of the human existence throughout history. For most of recorded history, it was very common to not feel well. Diseases with no cure, no climate control in houses, no rain, which leads to no food, raiders and bandits on the loose. For most of history, there was no police force. For much of American history, early American history, there was no police force. And so that leads to riots and mob rule. There's death in childbirth. There's high infant mortality rates. We still have an unnecessarily high infant mortality rate. It's called abortion. We knew a man at a previous church who got polio just two years before they discovered the vaccine for it. Wonderful man. He spent his life loving God and as a cripple. Many well-known figures in history suffered. Painter Vincent van Gogh. Some think he had what's called Meniere's disease, a disease that causes dizziness and swirling and tension in your ear. My father had it as well, and you just want to stop it, and some think that's why he may have tried to chop off his ear which is part of a surgery now. Musician Ludwig van Beethoven suffered many health ailments, including hearing and not feeling well, not realizing that much of it came from poisoning from the cups and the utensils that he used that were made out of pewter. Thomas Jefferson is known for the declaration, but also he dealt with his wife dying very young and he died in debt. I wonder sometimes if part of the reason modern people struggle with bad things so much is because we're out of touch with how often people lived with bad things through most of history. How about the people we know from Scripture as well? Moses, he's revered in Scripture. God used him mightily, but his experience was not the golden years of a suburban, it just keeps getting better. Moses, you're going to spend the first 40 years of your life in a palace eating palatial food. Awesome. What do I get for my 40th birthday, God? Surprise. You're going to be a shepherd in the wilderness. Well, that's not great. Can it get worse? Well, Moses, for your 80th birthday, you're going to spend the final 40 years of your life wandering in a desert responsible for over 1 million complainers. You're going to lead them to the promised land that you will not get to go in. Happy birthday. God is sovereign. How about Jeremiah? You're going to preach God's word. It's a lot of judgment and bad news, even though there is some good news in there as well. Hardly anyone's going to listen to you, Jeremiah. You're going to be persecuted. You'll be thrown in a pit, and your home city will be destroyed. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Jeremiah. Many of the hymns we sing come out of suffering. Horatio Spafford wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, when his wife and children were on a ship, and it was sunk, and only his wife survived. She sent him the telegram from England, two words, saved alone. And he writes that hymn. How about the hymn that we just sang, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. The author, George Matheson, wrote this hymn, and here's his quote from why he wrote it. Quote, I was suffering from extreme mental distress, and the hymn was the fruit of pain. We see it all around us, but it's masked. We go to watch movies by Hollywood stars. 
We listen to music by pop stars who portray heroism and devotion to others on the screen or in their songs, and they tell us how things ought to be. And they look great on the red carpet for the cameras, but in reality, in reality, those nice faces hide abortions, drug addictions, heavy drinking, a series of broken relationships and broken families. They are not people we should be emulating or fawning over. And it would be easy to look at the suffering in the world, but I'm going to ask this morning that we just focus in on our circle, your setting and those around you, your life, your family, your church, your neighbors, your classmates. It's easy to say that the world has a lot of problems, and it does, but we can't fix the world. God has put us each in our particular setting for such a time as this. So why do we experience suffering as a Christian? Here's three thoughts on that. And then when we turn to how do we respond as a believer, we'll talk about these in a different light. Why do we experience the reality of suffering? Three, three reasons. First, our expectations come from the culture. Our expectations come from the culture and not from Scripture. Commercials do it to us all the time. If you have any screen time, you're being fed messages as well. A game we used to play with our kids when we were younger we don't watch a ton of TV, but when the commercials would come on, the, the fun game was, what message are they trying to send to you right now? They're trying to sell you something, what is it? And so it kind of came this fun game with the kids of what the culture was selling us. Decades ago, McDonald's had a, had a phrase that came across really well, you deserve a break today. And that sold. Lots of McMuffins. At the same time, I think scripture would have a different opinion if we asked the question, what do you deserve today? We think we can customize our lives like our phone settings now. We think Google has the answers, but web pages are often the creation of the ignorant and the arrogant who ignore God's word and they think wisdom began when they were born. We forget that those who are old know what it's like to be young and they know what it's like to be old. Those who are young have only read the first chapter of life. Many who are young See aging and failing body parts as something they will never have to experience. But for many, it will come in a few decades. We assume that the way we are experiencing life must be the way that others experience it. If I'm happy, then certainly everyone else around me must be happy. Why aren't they happy? If I'm healthy, then certainly everyone else must be. I was present watching a man cross a street in a major city. He was disabled and in pain. He was at a crosswalk, and there was a car that had come up, and the car wanted to keep moving and was very impatient. And they started mocking this person who was crossing the street because they weren't going fast enough. And if only they had known that this person was suffering, they couldn't walk any faster. But they had to get to where they were going, and that's all that mattered. I'm happy. Why aren't you happy? Sometimes even those who do not claim Christ we'll see certain aspects of common grace and understanding human behavior. Many of the songs written throughout history, most notably a lot of the songs written during the World War II generation, were performed at the pace of a normal heart rate. We have songs that go fast and we have songs that go really slow, but there are many singers of that era who understand, understood that most of life is lived at a certain heart rate. And so let's write our songs for that heart rate. God writes his word for the paces and the heart rate of life. That's where most of life is lived. We expect our lives are going to go well, 
If you're a Christian in 21st century America, you expect to live in a decent house. We expect to have the internet. We expect to have running water, education, and health care. If you were a Christian in the first three centuries of Christ's birth, not so much. You expected to be poor, with little opportunities, and possibly die a martyr's death. We have troubles, but not as many as those who have come before us. When our troubles come, sometimes, sadly, we put our headphones in, we turn the movie up, we pour another glass, say another joke, or find some other way to ignore the experience that God is trying to bring us through. We don't even realize how much we've come to expect being able to control our environment. If we can control the temperature in the house, what we see on the screen, and get instant feedback. Unwittingly, we assume that we can control the suffering in our lives. So, reason one again, our expectations come from the culture and not from scripture. Another reason suffering is difficult for us, because we make our faith non-material. That's not something a good Presbyterian usually says, because our faith is something that we cannot see and touch. That is true, there are many aspects of our faith that we cannot see or touch. However, sometimes we take it further than it needs to go. You remember Jesus touched people. He healed them. He did minister physically. Sometimes we spiritualize our faith with platitudes. God is all I need. What about food and water that he's provided? God will make a way. What if that way means death? Romans 8.28 gets misused frequently here. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. I've heard people, and this is a great one we use a lot in my context in the military, where they'll say, everything happens for a reason. And I'll tell them, that doesn't mean it's a good reason. And then they kind of start up, and I said, that verse says that it happens for your good. That might not mean something that you like. It's for those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Do you love him? Have you been called? Physical ways, take a meal, help people out. Our faith can be material. A third reason why we experience suffering, because there are terribly sad and depressing things in this life. There's terribly sad and depressing things in this life. Satan is out to get us. We're targeted. Fallen creation, we have to live with it. And our own sin. Sometimes we do things to ourselves. We disobey parents. We disobey laws. We cheat. We lie, we steal, we break trust in relationships, we manipulate, we blame others for our own foolish choices, and then act as if we are the victim. Sometimes it's not us, it's others. Sometimes it's a whole bunch of scenarios. Let's go back to that hymn that you just sang, we just sang before the sermon by George Matheson, Oh, love that will not let me go. What was that mental distress that he was speaking of that pushed him to write this hymn? It was relationships and health issues. George was an aspiring preacher. Prior to his 20th birthday, he had written two theology books. It was said of him in his day that he could have been the greatest preacher in the United Kingdom, if not for his ailments. He was also engaged to be married. Everything was looking great. An aspiring preacher engaged to be married. Around that age of 20, he also found out that he was going blind. When he broke the news to his fiancee, She said, I cannot be married to someone like that. So she broke off the engagement. George's sister agreed to take care of him. 
For a few years, he managed to preach to almost 1,500 people a week, knowing that his body was failing him. But then 20 years later, his sister also got married. As he sat there thinking about the prospect of living the rest of his life alone, without a wife, without his sister, unable to fulfill his calling that God had called him to to minister, and practically blind, he came up with the words to this hymn, O love that will not let me go, they are so painful and so beautiful at once. It seems that life is just not fair. People abuse and mistreat, diseases happen, injuries, old age. Sometimes it's not the years, it's just the mileage, as the philosopher Indiana Jones said. Job loss. Your child that you invested so much time and prayers into does something that causes you incredible grief, and that one act possibly negatively impacts the rest of their life. You watch a loved one suffer for years. Your loved one dies. An opportunity to attend a school is lost. You had such great retirement plans, golden years, but then you or your spouse had a major illness that stopped all those plans. A fellow student is incredibly cruel to you and you wonder, why me? Why me, God? Do you care? Do you hear my prayers at all? There's terribly sad and depressing things out there. So what can a Christian do? Let's flip to our second part of the sermon here. What can a Christian do? Five points. Three of them are just the opposite of what we just talked about. If the first reason we fall prey to the suffering is because of cultural expectations, then our first point is don't fall prey to cultural expectations. What does Scripture say about how we ought to expect things? When people say, you shouldn't have to deal with this, well, why not? Maybe I should because God's brought it into my life. We don't challenge our own assumptions enough. We don't say, you seem so happy, what's wrong? We say, cheer up. We don't say, gloom down. I'm sorry, you're just too happy. I'm concerned about your, your faith right now. We say someone's not very cheerful as if being cheerful is better, but we don't say the opposite. If someone is despairing, we sometimes think they're struggling with their faith. But in reality, they might be very close to God, while a happy person might be very far from him. Ecclesiastes says it's actually better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. Don't think you're the only one. In this room alone, there are people other than you who are dealing with major challenges, and you may have much in common with your brother or sister across the room. So don't fall prey to cultural expectations. Number two, what can a Christian do? Don't spiritualize your faith too much. Don't spiritualize your faith too much. Pray, yes, pray. Prayer works. And get tangible help. They're not opposites. Tangible experiences are important. Before I had kids, I had no kids and I had lots of theories. And now I have multiple kids and no theories. <laughs> that was from the philosopher mom. We do the same thing when it comes to despair. We think we know until it's our turn. This also means that we often need tangible help when suffering. Prayer can be absolutely life-changing. Sometimes, though, it's used as an excuse not to do anything. I'll pray for you. Sometimes, what we mean is, I won't visit you. I won't bring a meal to you. I won't listen to you. I won't listen to your challenges or otherwise help. It's during tough times that you find out who truly cares about you. I realize you can't care for everybody. Some of you may have challenges that preclude you from really helping anyone else out. 
Sometimes all you can do is pray. Sometimes you have your plate full and that's normal, but find someone to whom you can give, even if it's within your own house. One example is shut-in ministry. I didn't pay attention to shut-in ministry until I became one. But that's also part of the problem. I only thought about it when it affected me. So number two, don't spiritualize your faith too much. Number three, deal with suffering and terror as scripture tells us to. If terrible and horrible things happen to us, then what does scripture say about them? It says this, don't ignore it. You can hurt someone by versing away their issue. Pain is not a quick fix, and sometimes the person who is hurting is more wise than those who are trying to help. I believe that most Christians think we would handle suffering better than Job. And I also believe that in reality, most professing Christians do much worse than Job. He complained a lot. Yes, he did. He didn't get his answer even at the end of the book after God showed up as to why, specifically why it was happening. But at least he kept complaining to God. He never stopped going back to God. He didn't stop. We ask God why he has forsaken us at time. Why have you forsaken me, God? His only son asked that same question. Yet we are given the promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. God's love for his son did not make the whips and the nails become painless. And likewise, it is not a promise that our pain will go away. It's a promise that one day it will all go away. So we live with hope. Two more reasons and then we're done. What is a Christian to do? Number four, seek out those who suffer. Number four, seek out people who suffer. Sometimes people who suffer need reminders. They need reminders from you because they have lost their way and it's dark. Sometimes those who suffer though are often the least likely to speak. They're often the ones, however, sometimes they're the ones we need to listen to the most. Suffering can isolate you. You don't want to be around people for many reasons. That's not always bad, but we need to be looking for people who might need to be connected more. Go find them. Don't treat people as less than you. Treat them as people who need help, but as people who can also help you. Those who suffer often give better advice on how to care than those who have not suffered. If you've suffered, sometimes you know you've had to be patient with those who were trying to help you because they'll say things that don't help or sometimes they think they know better. Those who suffer or who have suffered greatly often have a more accurate picture of their relationship with God than those who have not. Jesus spent a lot of time with suffering people. It's not fun, and yet you still believe. You still believe in the midst of all that. I haven't let go. Sometimes people say they believe, but it's only because their life is going well. The joy of the Lord may be their strength, but maybe it's just because their health and their bank account are doing okay. This passage here seems so repetitive. You keep going over and over the fact of how terrible things are and how bad. We get it. We get the point. Can you stop? And yet, that's how my prayers have been at times. Perhaps some of yours have been that way too when we're in despair. A final thing. What is a Christian to do? Last reason. Know that God is for the true Christian. We can know that God is for the true Christian. There are times where people feel like God is an absentee father. I have been there myself. Where are you? 
I can't see you and I don't sense your presence, God. I know you're there. It just doesn't feel like it right now. In verses 10 to 12, however, our writer doesn't doubt God's power, ultimately. But he's asking questions. What's going on here? In verse 13, he keeps crying and crying to God. Finally, here it comes, the why questions. In verse 14, why? Why have you cast me away? What have I done? I've sought to follow you. Sought to be a Christian. And then in verses 15 to 17, here's the chronicness of the issue. This is a chronic problem. It's long-term and it is severe and it is not going away. Verse 18 is the one that companies would pick if you've ever been to someone's house and you have those nice, the joy of the Lord is my strength and beautiful calligraphy as soon as you walk in the house. You see those verses? Verse 18, this is the one that they should be selling. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. That's not the kind of thing that sells in American stores. Oh, well. And yet it's also inspired scripture. We just don't like it for our interior decorating. This passage ends with attention. Some would call that faith. There's no happy ending here. We don't know how this ended, nor do we know how our situations are going to end this side of eternity. But we also don't read Bible passages in isolation from the rest of the Bible. And so let's not do that this morning either. We don't know our earthly future. What we do know is going to take us back to verse 10 there. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Well, the answer to both of those questions is a resounding yes. But the sons of Korah could not see that at that time. Because in redemptive history, the fulfillment had not yet come. He's wondering if God has left him. Cries questioning if God has given up on me have run throughout history. Most notably 2,000 years ago where one was forsaken on a cross so that others would not be. There are times where it feels like you do not have the faith you, you think that you should. God gives faith in those moments. And sometimes it's not me holding on to God at all. All I can say is, God, thank you for not letting go of me and holding me up. Because you don't have the faith you think you should, and that's okay. If we go back to that hymn, O love that will not let me go, the third verse says this, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain, that morn shall tearless be. In the middle of that rain and thunderstorm, he is finding the rainbow that God has made for him in the midst of all of this. I don't know what pains your life has, and I don't know what pains your life will hold. We won't necessarily know why those pains happened or even know what lessons they're supposed to teach us. Sometimes people ask, well, what have you learned? Sometimes we can't answer that question. Sometimes it's better not to ask that question to people who are struggling. We just know that troubles have come, but we do know that one day, those who trust in Christ will be done with suffering and death. And perhaps one day, after this mortal life is over, we might get to have a discussion with Job and with Korah and talk about some things. Once the story has been made known, or maybe we'll be so overjoyed to be done with suffering that we just don't care anymore. 
It's enough that it's over. Then again, maybe we'll just be so overwhelmed at the glory of our suffering Savior who reigns that in spite of the fact that we have eternity, we won't even take the time to think about our past sufferings too much. Regardless, sin, death, and suffering will be no more, and God will be on his throne. There will be no more drama in relationships. It's a slight paraphrase of Revelation. No clicks in God's kingdom. No trust issues with the one who is truth. Meanwhile, we groan, we ache, and we long for that day when our hope in the resurrection will be seen. Not just with the eyes of faith, but with our new eyes that don't need glasses to see, using feeble arms, made strong again to give a big hug to loved ones who made it home to Jesus decades before we did. Praising our Savior as we lift up restored hands without tremors or arthritis anymore. Dancing in his joy with new hips, singing with new vocal cords without tremors, strong voices, and using knees that bend just fine so that we may bow before him. Amen.